So uh, I'm here to continue on in our series with, uh, in Romans with you guys. And um, we have been looking at this book, um, which is probably the book in the Bible that gives the biggest explanation of what the gospel is. What the gospel is, what the good news about Jesus is, what Jesus actually did when he came and died on a cross and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, and just like what difference that actually makes for our lives. And um, some of you might know, if you know me a little bit, uh, that I come from a family of doctors. I'm actually the only person in my family who is not either a doctor or becoming a doctor. I'm the black sheep. My sister is in medical school right now. My brother is probably going to go to medical school. So I'm, you know, I don't know. You guys got stuck with me. I'm sorry. Oh, stop. <laughs> but but the reason, I, the reason I bring this up, this is not just, you know, preacher's confessions for public consumption, but it's because if, 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 if any of you have doctors in your life, you know, the great thing about that is you get all kinds of free medical advice. So when I was growing up, whenever anything was wrong with me, I could just ask my mom or my dad, and, you know, poof, you know, I'd have exactly all the information I needed to know. And the thing is, you know, that you, you learn if you're from a family of doctors like I am is that you can't know what's, you, you can't get cured unless you know what's wrong with you. You can't get cured unless you know what, the, what, you know, what your diagnosis is. And, and what I want to tell you is that this same principle applies spiritually. And you might have noticed that over the last couple of weeks, the section that we've been in on Romans is all about the diagnosis. It's the hard part of the book because what we're learning is the disease that the human heart is afflicted with, and that disease is called sin. And I hope that instead of just kind of wanting to tune your ears off and say, man, you know, just like, give me the good stuff. Like, I want to get to the, the good stuff that doesn't make me all like sad and discouraged. I hope you listen up because you have no way of truly appreciating who Jesus is and what he did on the cross unless you've seen what he's come to save us from. You have no way of truly appreciating what Jesus did for you unless you've seen what he's done, what he's come to save us from. And that's what we're looking at tonight. This section from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, gives us the diagnosis and, and tells us what our hearts are really like. And so tonight we're looking at Romans 2 which is all about judging others. And that means that we're going to plunge deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness. And we're going to see that this chapter forces you to come face to face with the state of our own hearts. And it's painful, it's poignant, and it's powerful. So I'm going to read the first half of this chapter, and then I'm going to just offer a few comments, try to explain it, and then uh, hand it over to small groups, and you guys can discuss it tonight. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. And I'm going to read just the first half, which is chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. 
God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing and now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let me just pray for us here. Uh, Lord, would you just bless this time of looking at this passage? And would it not be information, Lord, but would it bring transformation? In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So what we just read claims to tell you the truth about your own heart. And I want to look at this in just uh, under three different headings here. And what this is going to show us, first of all, is, is first of all, it's going to show us that we justify ourselves. That we justify ourselves. And then the second thing it's going to show us is what happens when we justify ourselves. And the third thing is, how do you escape? How do you escape? Because as you're going to see, like, when I actually kind of unpack a little bit more of what this actually means to, like, justify yourself or to kind of make yourself look good in your own eyes, you're going to want to escape. You're going to be like, oh, my gosh, Lord, save me from myself. So if you come to the end of this message tonight and that's where you're at, that's, like, the perfect place to be. But uh, I'm going to hopefully explain a little bit about, well, how do you escape from that? So the first thing to, to see in this chapter is the fact that we justify ourselves. And if you notice what, what we just read, there's a really important shift that happens. If you've been like reading or studying through this book with, with, with the rest of us here at Thrive, you'll notice there's, there's a shift. So in the section before, in chapter 1, Paul is talking about the sin of the pagan world. You know, remember, he's writing to a mixed group of Christians. There are some Christians who are Jewish Christians. They've come from a Jewish background. There are some Christians who are Gentiles who come from a non-Jewish background. And Paul's trying to tell them, well, look, you guys are different, you know, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, but you're all on the same gospel boat. Like you're all like equally sinful before God and equally in need of salvation before God. And he helps to introduce that shift right here. So, so the first chapter in chapter 1, it's all about the sin of the pagan world. And when he's in that chapter, he's speaking in the third person. He'll use words like they and them and their. So just, here's a couple examples. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Or in verse 25, he says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And then you look at the verse 29, it's this big long list of all of these sins that, that uh, were just kind of right there on the surface of, you know, things that everyone would have agreed, yep, this is what those, those Gentiles do. And Paul says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if you were listening to this section and you were a Jew, you would have probably been cheering Paul on up to this point. 
Of course that's what those Gentiles do. I mean, of course they deserve to be punished by God. Look at all those things that they're doing. But here's the epic masterstroke. Look at the very first verse of chapter 2. And in this one verse, Paul silences all of their sneering by changing one little pronoun. Instead of they, he now says, you. He says, you think I'm just talking about you Gentile, about those Gentiles. But don't you realize that I am talking about you guys too? Don't you realize that you are just as guilty as they are? And in fact, you're, you're, you're practically more guilty than they are. Let me show you why. So, so look at verse 1 again. Let me, I'm going to read this one more time. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, this, I know we have some college people in here. Stick up a hand if, if you're someone here who like studied psychology in college, major or minor or something like that. There are a lot of psychology people out there in the world. You know that psychology as a field is only a couple hundred years old, and it's like it's what everyone studies these days. Well, if you're into psychology, this one little verse probably contains some of the most like profound you know, psychological insight in, 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 in about, about how humans operate. How do humans operate? According to this verse, the way that humans operate is that we judge other people. Full stop. We judge other people. Now, a lot of you guys have probably heard, you know, that, that people say that, oh, you know, all kinds of judgment is wrong. You know, the, the, the line of thinking says, well, you know, wasn't it true that Jesus said, judge not, lest ye be judged? Therefore, you know, we shouldn't judge other people. We especially shouldn't judge other people's lifestyles. But the Bible is a little bit more nuanced than that. It doesn't condemn all kinds of judgment. And in fact, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians, this is chapter 2, verse 6, 15, where it says, the spiritual man makes judgment about all things. So in other words, you know, like, judgment itself is not necessarily the bad thing. Because, you know, sometimes all judgment is, is just kind of simply discerning what's good and what's evil. So, so when judgment is just discernment, that's not what the Bible speaks against. But the kind of judgment being targeted here is characterized by one word. It's the word hypocrisy. I think I heard someone say it back there. Good, good on you. The point of verse 1 is that all of us are hypocrites. All of us are hypocrites because we condemn others for the very things that we ourselves do. So a long time ago, the, the, there was a guy named Francis Schaeffer who came up with what I think is probably just the best illustration of, of what this actually looks like. He says, you know, imagine that every time someone is born, they're born into this world, and they have this little invisible tape recorder around their neck. And on that tape recorder, it records every thought and judgment you've had about how other people ought to live. So for example, you know, you're driving your car, and you're on the freeway, and then like some crazy guy in a Corvette cuts you off. And you think to yourself, he shouldn't have done that. You know, he could have caused a wreck. You know, he almost dented my nice car. Or, you know, you hear about, like, a really powerful businessman, and, you know, you hear about how he, like, forgot to report an item on his taxes. Or you, and you think to yourself, man, that's not fair. You know, these big shots who have all this money and get away with all this stuff, it's just not fair. Or, you know, the political party that you don't like doesn't keep one of their campaign promises, and you smugly think to yourself, man, I always knew those Republicans were hypocrites. Or I always knew those Democrats were just a bunch of dirty, rotten schemers. All of that goes on the tape recorder. But the tape recorder also records every time that you yourself do the very same things that you condemn in others. So like the time when you're in a rush, you know, you're like really, really late to thrive or to school or whatever it is. 
funny story about this. <laughs> I'm not trying to like poke at everyone here, but I remember once I met a cop who uh, actually goes to this church. And uh, I remember once he was like, oh yeah, you know, Thrive, I always pull all you guys over after Thursday nights. So uh, drive safe, guys. <laughs> But, you know, let's say you're, you're in a rush somewhere, you cut someone off. You know, that goes on the tape recorder. Or the time that, you know, you're, you kind of forget to report something on your taxes, you get a large return. Or the time that your political party breaks their promises and you kind of just give them a free pass. All on the tape recorder. So on Judgment Day, who is prosecuting you? The answer is, you are. You are your own prosecutor. God is fair. You know, if you didn't have knowledge of Jesus or the Bible, God doesn't have to judge you on those things. Instead, he's going to judge you on the basis of your own standards. So what is Judgment Day? <laughs> this verse is saying that it's simply taking the tape recorder from around your neck and pushing play. And by the way, Jesus said this exact same thing. If you, you know, if you, if you think that, oh man, all this stuff about judgment, doesn't this seem to go against like all the stuff the Bible says about love and forgiveness? Jesus says the exact same thing. In Matthew 7, verse 2, he says, In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And what that means is just so scary. <laughs> I mean, it means if you're kind of like a, like kind of a tight-hearted person, and you're really, really mean-spirited toward other people, that that same measure that you use is the same measure that will be measured back to you. Which is why the Bible says that, like, unless we forgive others, that God won't forgive us. Forgiveness is a command for Christians. Because how crazy would it be to respond to, like, the infinite love and forgiveness that God has offered us, and for us to not even be willing to, to extend just, like, a fraction of that kind of forgiveness to someone else? But I want to go a little deeper here. So, I mean, that's like the general idea. But, but let me go a little bit deeper here because w what we're talking about here is the human tendency to justify yourself. That's what that means. To justify yourself means to try to make yourself look good in your own eyes. And the problem with this, you know, it seems on the one hand that you know, there, there wouldn't have to be a problem with this since doesn't our culture say that you should try to do what you can to feel good about yourself? That like, well, you know, I want to I have high self-esteem. I don't want to have low self-esteem. That would be damaging. That would be psychologically you know, da dangerous. But look, there are two problems with trying to justify yourself. Because when you try to justify yourself, it means you're doing two things at once. And the first thing, the first problem is that you can't justify yourself without condemning other people. You can't. You know, I, I, this is a story I once heard. I actually don't know if this is true, but I, I hope it's true because it's just, it's hilarious. There's, there's a, this story about a guy who was a pastor. And this pastor one day is approached by this big mob boss whose brother has passed away. And his brother is also this, you know, this guy who's just a very, you know, devious character. And, and everyone, everyone in town knows this. I mean, they're, 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 they're well-known gangsters. And so the brother turn, comes to the pastor and says, you know, I want you to do my brother's funeral. And I don't want you to say anything bad about him at all. You better tell him, you better tell all those people who are out there listening that my brother was, was an absolute saint. And if you do anything else, if you say anything bad about my brother, then my people are going to find you and we're going to kill you. And so this guy, this pastor, you know, he, he really doesn't have a whole lot of choice. He's got to do the funeral or else he'll get shot. If he does do the funeral and says something wrong, he'll get shot. He's like, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I'll figure this out. So the day of the funeral, he's standing up there before all these people. And he's, and he's giving his, his, his little sermon about the brother. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, the man that we are burying today was a liar, a cheat, and a scoundrel. 
but compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> it is funny. But the thing about this is that, look, it's, it's easy, it's easy to make a sinner look like a saint when you compare him to other sinners. It's easy to make a sinner look like a saint when you compare him to other sinners. And this is the exact strategy of the human heart. Remember the Pharisee in the temple? In this story that Jesus tells, and he's standing in front of the temple, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And this guy is a guy who's proud of himself. He does have high self-esteem. He's proud of himself. And, and he justifies himself on the basis of what he does. But notice that he does this by comparing himself with someone else. He says, I can feel good about myself, not because I'm comparing myself to God, but because I'm comparing myself to other people. And now notice what's happened here. First of all, he's completely thrown the law of God out the window. And this is crazy because, you know, who cares if he's better than the tax collector? The tax collector isn't his judge. God is his judge. I mean, aren't God's eyes the only eyes in the universe that count? So when you compare yourself to someone else and you say, oh, you know, I can feel better about myself because, like, at least I don't do all the things that they do. I mean, who cares? That other person isn't your judge. But if you look at Jesus' standards, Jesus' standards weren't just, oh, you know, be better than that other person and then you'll be okay. His standards were perfection. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's easy to be a saint when you're comparing yourself to other sinners. But if that's, the, if that's what you're doing, then what that does is it completely blinds you to the true state of your own heart. And God can see it, even if others can't. And the even bigger problem with this is that self-justification can never make you look good unless you're trashing other people. I mean, I think you can see why. <laughs> I mean, so, so think about this. I call this the swipe syndrome. And what do we do? Every single day, thousands of Americans get out their phones and they go on Facebook and they go on Instagram. And these are like people who are supposedly your friends, right? But you go on Facebook, you go on Instagram, and you, you're, you're, you're swiping through pictures of other people's lives. And you, know, is it, you see people who, like, you know, Devontae and Grace, getting engaged when you're still single, you know, or who are getting jobs and you're still unemployed, or, you know, you're, you're going, they're going to a beach vacation, and you're just like stuck slogging through school. You know what that does? It makes you really insecure, probably. And that insecurity is going to lead you to do one of two things. One thing it'll let you, it'll, it'll lead you to do, for, it could lead you to freak out that your life is like more miserable than all those other guys, and you're going to be filled with like pity for yourself, and you're going to be envious toward other people. Comparison makes you miserable. Comparison makes you absolutely miserable. That's one thing you might do. Or the other thing you might do is you might do this. You might cook up every possible explanation that you can for why you think your life is actually better than all those other people. And in that case, you're going to be filled with self-righteousness. You might say, well, you know, look, those guys are engaged, but you know what? I'm still single because I'm single for Jesus. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and then you, you swipe. Next one. You say, well, you know, the, the, that person may have a job, but the only reason they have a job and I don't, well, because, you know, I chose to go to grad school. I chose to get more education, and I'm just a little behind them, and I'm going to catch up and have a better job with more money, and I'm more educated than them, and swipe. Or you say, oh, you know, they're on a beach vacation. You know, man, I wish my life were such fun and games, but, you know, I'm, like, working really hard so I can pay my mortgage and so I can support my family. You know, man, if only people were as, as hardworking and as diligent as me. Swipe. 
don't you see that you can't justify yourself unless you're putting other people down? Your high opinion of yourself is literally built on like trashing all the people you care about. That's what self-justification does. And the other problem is, is not, is, it's not just that we condemn others, but it's that we excuse ourselves. That we excuse ourselves. So read, look, at, look at verses 1 through 3 again. I'm going to read these one more time. It says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, here, here, here's the question. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Very often we answer that question, yes. We think, yes, I will escape God's judgment because we let ourselves off the hook for the very things we condemn in others. And, and we will literally reach for any excuse to do this. I mean, this is crazy. We will, you know, think about all the different excuses we reach for to try to make ourselves look good and to let ourselves off the hook. You know, so we'll blame other people. This is exactly what Eve did. Eve blamed the serpent and said, you know, it was the serpent who made me do it. And then Adam blames Eve and says, it was Eve who made me do it. You know, the woman you put here, he blames God for putting the woman in the garden. I mean, no wonder, like, marriage is so hard and crazy. It's been going on since the beginning. You know, you might say, oh, you know, the reason for my poor job report is that my manager just never supports me. Or, you know, the reason is that, that we broke up was that, man, she had so many issues. We blame our circumstances. We say, you know, I blew the stop sign because I didn't see it. You still, blew, you still blew the stop sign. You know, you say, or, you know, I forgot to buy flowers because I was really busy. Or, you know, I, I, I blew up at you because I had a really, really hard day at work. Blame our upbringing. We say, you know, man, I, I take after my mom. Or, you know, I get my anger from my dad's side of the family. Or, you know, addiction is just like it's part of our genetics. We blame our personal history. We say, you know, man, you'd understand if you had lived through what I've lived through. If you, if you had a, hard as, a life as hard as my life, then you'd understand. Or we blame our biology. We say, you know, I'm just a strong personality. It's just the way I am. You know, I, I speak my mind regardless of how it affects other people. It's just how I'm wired. We just make all of these excuses. We'll reach for anything, literally, to cover ourselves. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden trying to find a bunch of fig leaves so they can cover their nakedness. We know deep down that there are things in us that are wrong, and we use excuses like fig leaves to try to cover ourselves up. But the problem with that is that it just, it, it just digs a pit even deeper for you because when you try to deny sin or diminish sin or downplay sin, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Sin is sin. And if you don't call it what it is and repent of it and turn around from it, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll take you where you don't want to go. It'll keep you there longer than you planned to be. And the best thing you can possibly do is look it square in the face and say, I have a problem and there's got to be a change. No more excuses. No more excuses. So I hope you can see, like, this little section of Scripture, it's getting right to the heart of things. It's saying that the, the, the fundamental strategy that we humans have is we try to justify ourselves and we try to condemn others and excuse ourselves. And that's what I want to pause here. I mean, <laughs> if you haven't already caught on to just how absolutely sinister this is, and I hope you will as we just look at this, this second point here. Because the second point is just sort of fleshing out from this passage a few more things that this passage say happen when you try to justify yourself. 
And I want to give you three things that this passage says happen to you and to other people when this little tendency of the human heart goes unchecked. First thing is that we become unjust judges. We become unjust judges. So if you think about it, our passage that we read, it opens with 2 verse 1. It says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Then it closes in verse 16. This will take place on the day when God will judge. So first verse, man judging. Second verse, God judging. And what this means is that, like, that, that what this passage is depicting, it's depicting us. It's depicting human beings claiming for ourselves the office of judge. Like we're claiming for ourselves an office that belongs to God alone. And we can't claim that position. We can't. And, and you know, there are a lot of reasons for this, but one very, very, very obvious reason is that you're not qualified for this job of, of being God. <laughs> you, you don't have the credentials, you don't have the CV to take God's job. And, and this is so true in judgment. You know, think about judgment. Like, in order to actually truly judge someone in the way that God judges someone, you have to know exactly what happened when someone did whatever thing they did. Because all of our actions, if you think about it, you know, we're responsible for our actions, but that doesn't mean that there are other factors in what we do that we should take into account when we're thinking about what someone deserves. I mean, so it, it, it only makes sense to take into account all the different things that, that might have played into that. You know, so family history, place of birth, place of schooling, past experiences, you know, even what you had for breakfast in the morning, all of that can profoundly influence what we do and why. You see, you want one example of this? Uh, stick up a hand if you've ever seen Les Mis before. I'm curious to see if there's been, like, more, if more guys than girls have seen, or more girls than guys. I always think of this as more like sort of a, well, maybe I shouldn't say it. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, great, 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 great movie, great musical. And, and you know the main character in that is a guy named Jean Valjean. He's this, he's this French guy who's poor, and he steals a loaf of bread to feed his family. And he's in prison for that for 18 years. Now, you know, imagine, you know, imagine that there's another guy in this play, and imagine that, you know, this guy steals a loaf of bread because he thinks, well, I'm rich, you know, I can do whatever I want. I can steal that loaf of bread and not get away, you know, not, not have any consequences for it. Now, the two guys, you know, they commit the same crime. You know, but man, would, would, would the different motives have anything to do with how you might approach what they deserve? And, and only God knows motives, and, and only God has the actual intelligence to actually know what each person deserves. We don't have a fraction of the information that we need to judge people correctly. So every time we point the finger at someone else, and say, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. You know, you may be right, but you're not in a position to be the final judge. You don't know what that person has been through. You don't know why they did what they did. You don't have the ability to play the judge. And verse 2 claims that God's judgment, unlike our judgment, is based on truth. God is the only one who is the truth, who knows the truth, who sees the truth. And one way that Paul fleshes that out is a little bit later in the, in the passage. He says in verses 6 through 11, something more about that. Well, let me just read them for you one more time. Uh, he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now, these verses um, almost sound like they're teaching a kind of like justification by works. You notice he says, like, God will 
give to each person according to what he has done. It sounds like works. Does that mean that we're saved by works? Does that mean that everything else Paul says in the book of Romans about being saved by faith is wrong? No, I, that's, I don't think that's what he's getting at. But what I think about the, you know, what he's saying in these verses, it's almost as though like Paul is sort of spelling out the rules of the game. He's saying, look, God is fair. God is fair. God's going to honor those who do good. He's going to punish those who do evil. And he's going to honor those who are seeking for, seeking, what, what, what does he say here? He says, for, for glory, honor, and immortality. And, you know, I, I think of those primarily of like God's glory, God's honor. God's going to honor people who, who seek those things. And he's going he's to show, show, show punishment to those who do evil. And the problem, of course, with this is that the outside of Christ, there is no one who is good. If there were someone who was perfectly good, well, then maybe it would be different. But, but when Paul is saying that God is simply fair, that he rewards good and he punishes evil, he's not saying we're saved by works. He's saying that no one can be saved by their good works because no one is good. But furthermore, what these verses also imply is that God alone can be judge of what is truly good and what is truly bad. You know, what good and evil both look like. We're not qualified to judge others. And another reason that we're not, that only God's qualified to judge is, is in verse 16, where it literally speaks to, to, to kind of the deeper heart motive behind things that we do. And it says that God's going to judge the secrets of men's hearts, the things that only we know, only God knows. And there's no way for us to know those things. So every time we put ourselves in a position of trying to condemn others to, to, to excuse ourselves, every time we play the judge, we're being unjust judges. We're being cruel dictators. And only God has the ability to perfectly judge and yet be perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that when you try to justify yourselves, it destroys relationships. It destroys relationships. And of course, that's just what you'd expect if it really means that you're condemning others and you're excusing yourself. I mean, just imagine for a minute. Like if you're in a relationship with a significant other, maybe you've like experienced this personally already, but imagine if you went about that whole relationship condemning the other person and excusing yourself for all the bad things you do. How do you think that relationship's going to go? <laughs> not very well. Uh, I, I'm not going to say at this point that I can speak from experience. I am in a relationship, but uh, yeah, well, I probably have lots to learn. <laughs> But, you know, think about this. This is so true of, like, politics. Do you know the reason why our country right now is completely being torn apart left and right? It's because the, you know, the other side is always wrong. Because we believe the other side is always wrong. You know, so I remember after Trump got elected in 2016, there was, like, this post-election interview panel. A bunch of, you know, on this side, there were a bunch of liberals. On this side, there were a bunch of conservatives. And they were just, like shouting back and forth at each other. I mean, there were a lot of emotions that night. So, you know, emotions were high. But these guys, they're shouting back and forth at each other. And one side saying, no, 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 you guys aren't listening. You're not listening. You're just talking. You're not listening. And then the other guys over here saying, you're, just, you're not listening to me. You're just talking and you're not paying attention to what I'm saying. And I thought, this is, this is lunacy. I mean, this makes America look like the circus. But do you see what's going on here? This is the exact thing that this passage is talking about. The other side is always wrong. My side is always right. Self-justification says, my life for yours. Self-justification says, I didn't do it. Self-justification says, it wasn't my fault. And this is just, like, this just destroys relationship. It destroys relationship. One person who knew this was a guy named C.S. Lewis. 
And uh, anyone ever read his book here called The Great Divorce? It's this book where C.S. Lewis, he kind of has like this allegory where there's a guy in the book who's on an imaginary bus ride from hell to heaven. And he's not trying to like paint this perfect picture of what he thinks hell or heaven's going to be like, but he's trying to like give a picture of like of what it, uh, he's trying to paint a picture to help you get a better understanding of what sort of the condition of a person's heart would be who ends up in hell. And in this book, he, he sort of imagines hell as like this big, really large, dingy, kind of low-lit, kind of sleazy-looking city. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the narrator, the guy who's kind of on the bus ride, he's trying to understand what it is he's looking at. So he turns to a, his little fellow passenger on the bus, and he asks him, you know, why is it that this city, this, this city that's supposed to be hell, why does it seem so empty? Well, and the passenger, here's how he responds. He says, well, you know, the trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of town and build a new house. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live, millions of miles away, millions of miles from each other, and every now and then they move further still. Isn't that just a fascinating description of what the hell of the human heart can look like? Like, he imagines, like, a bunch of people who are so, like, you know, they, who, who say to themselves, it's their fault, it's not my fault. I didn't do it, he did it. And because they, they, they refuse to ever make themselves be in the wrong, all they can do is just, like, be driven further and further and further and further away from other people. And inside one of those far-off houses, the passenger explains, that he says that you can, all you can see in there, there's this lonely, angry man and he's walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment and muttering to himself all the time, it was his fault, it was her fault, it was so-and-so's fault. And that depiction is so powerful because self-righteousness pushes you away from those you love. You're the only one who's right. And it's never your fault. And that's why self-justification always leaves you lonely and always leaves you isolated. So it destroys relationships. And then one final thing. When you justify yourself, you misunderstand the character of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. When you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? And what he's saying is, is that when you condemn others to excuse yourself, what that is, is to, that, what that's fundamentally is, is to not realize that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Like when you're judging someone else, you're missing that God's heart is totally different than your heart. You're missing that God is patient unlike you. God is kind unlike you, and he's kind and he's patient because he wants people to repent. He doesn't want people to be driven away and to be lonely. He wants to save us from ourselves. And man, you know, there's this story that Jesus tells about, uh, well, it's not even a story, it's actually something that happens in his life in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And in comes this woman, and everyone in the town knows that, oh, she's lived a sinful life. And the woman 
comes and begins to like clean Jesus' feet with her hair and, and just do all this like really kind of pretty forward stuff. And the Pharisee is like, oh man, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know who this woman is, that she's a sinner. And then Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, do you see this woman? When I arrived, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You, in other words, you didn't do all the things that were common courtesy for a host to do for their guest. But since this woman came in, she has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. And she has not stopped covering me in kisses. And though her sins were many, they have been forgiven. Because, Simon, he who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And what he's saying is that when you recognize the depth of what Jesus has done for you, that's going to give you a depth of love for him. But I think it can also work the other way around. When you are hard-hearted toward other people and when you are judgy toward other people, then I think that that kind of almost puts like a filter over your, over your eyes, over your heart. And you begin to imagine that God is just like you. And I mean, how often is it true that like when you kind of get into sort of a, a rut where you're just feeling really harsh and really critical toward people around you, that you feel like God is just as mad and as angry at you. Those things go together. When you judge other people, it is very, very easy to project that back onto God. And that's not how God is. That's not how God is. And just really quick, um, we're, you know, as you can tell, we're not even to the end of this chapter. We're going to have to pick it up next week because there's so much here. But just really quick, I want to just talk about how do you get out of this? How do you get out of this? And the very first thing I want to say is just really simple. It's to repent from judging and to repent from righteousness. You know, it's one thing to repent of your sin and to say, Lord, you know, I know I've done some pretty bad things that everyone would think are pretty bad. You know, like I've like, been, a, you know, disobedient to my parents or I've, you know, been abusing substances or I've been sleeping around with people. Like, Obviously, it's one thing to repent of your sin, but this passage is saying you have to repent of your righteousness. You have to repent of saying, you know, I'm a pretty good person, and, and, and I don't need a Savior, and I'm better than those other people. There are more people in hell because they have never repented of their righteousness than because of their sin. The main, like, common denominator that unites hell is pride. It's pride. So the way to escape is to repent of that. And to turn around and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I do the very same things that I am most prone to condemn in other people. And if I could just encourage you tonight, like if God is speaking to you about that, then just come before him and say, Lord, would you just get all of this gunk out of my heart? I need you. So the first thing is that you can repent from judging. The second thing is that you can recognize the, dr the judge, the true judge. Because God is not a judge like us, and that is good news. That's good news. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a short story that someone wrote about the kind of judge that God really is. And in this story, it's a story about a bunch of people. It's the end of time. It's the, you know, right before Judgment Day. And a whole bunch of people come together, people who, are, who have been victims of terrible, horrible things. So in this crowd, there's, there's someone who rips open a sleeve and reveals that there's a, a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. And then there's another boy who, who lowers his collar, African-American, who shows a, an ugly rope burn from, from a lynching. 
Or in another, you know, another person in the crowd is, is someone who's, who's, been, who's been raped and impregnated and then says, you know, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. And, and, and all across, you know, the, the, this plane full of people, everyone has their complaint against God for the evil and suffering that they had gone through in this world. And they think to themselves, man, how lucky God was. You know, he lived in heaven this whole time. He knew, like, all of the joys and sweetnesses and, 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 and blessings that we didn't have in this life. It's not fair. God can't judge us because he doesn't know what it's like. And they say to themselves, you know what, let's do. We, you know, if God's going to judge us, then we're going to judge him. And if he's going to be qualified to be our judge, he needs to endure what we've endured. So they decide that they're going to get together, and they're going to put a sentence on God. And here's what they come up with. They say, God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. You know, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury. Let him be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a host of witnesses to verify it. And all of these, this crowd of people is just getting pumped up. And they're saying, rah, rah, rah. This is what God deserves. This is what would be required for him to judge us. And then one by one, they all realize that God has already served his sentence. That the judge of this world came into this world as a human being who faced more injustice and more suffering and more evil than any of us ever, ever have. And he made no excuses. He is our judge. And if that's the heart of our judge, a judge who was willing to go through all of that for a bunch of people who hide behind fig leaves, who make excuses, who condemn other people, who are mean-spirited at best, if that's the kind of judge that we have, then we don't have to play the judge anymore. We can take off the judge's robe, we can get rid of the gavel, and we can sit beneath the sovereignty, the authority, the, 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 the judgmental authority of God because he is fair, he is just. And he's not just just, he's mercy, mercy, merciful and gracious through what he did through giving Jesus on the cross. So this is kind of a hard place to, to end because um, I know that this doesn't really paint the, the nicest picture of what uh, the human heart is like, but it's important, I think, just to, um, just to really take this in and to say, man, Lord, would you just deliver me um, of, of all of the self-righteousness I have? Do you deliver me of all the excuses that I make of trying to turn away and deny the sin that, that, I, that I, I'm prone to? Um, so as we go into small groups, I just pray that you'll wrestle with this and um, just sit in it for a while. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into small groups. Uh, Lord, thank you for this passage, for just how convicting it is. Um, and would you um, just make us people of grace, um, not people who um, throw the first stone, but Lord, would you just uh, point us back to Jesus, the perfect judge, um, who judges not only fairly, but with grace and with mercy, who gives us what we don't deserve um, through what he did and laying down his life for us on the cross. In his name we pray, amen.